So let's stand together. Very familiar passage. Most of you have probably memorized it at one time or another because it is a pivotal passage. You know, Paul, when he writes Romans, it's a long letter. It's a virtual treatise. And he turns the corner there in mid-chapter 3, and then he turns the corner again in mid-chapter 7. And then in the beginning of chapter 9, he turns another corner, makes a pivot, and moves his argument forward for three more chapters. And then in chapter 12, where it says, therefore, he's turning the corner again to take us to the very end and all through the practical admonitions and the personal greetings and word, etc., that he'll say to the church there in Rome in his letter. So this is a pivotal passage in the flow of the argument, but it stands alone in so many ways. Hear now the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As Paul makes this pivot and turns from what sometimes is rather uh, simplistically called the doctrinal section of one of his letters to the practical section, and of course those lines are hard to draw because that which is doctrinal is extremely practical, and we really don't have any decent idea of what our practice ought to be until we know what the doctrine ought to be. We, we need to have credenda, that is what we believe, and agenda, that is what we do both in our lives and they're, they're intermeshed all through the Bible. And so it's kind of hard to make that delineation, but some make it. So this is supposed to be the setup in the introduction to the more practical section of the application of the truths that, that um, Paul's been setting forth. But he, he, he doesn't move there without really a summary statement. And it is found in that place there where he says, I appeal to you brothers by the mercy of of God or the mercies of God. Now, this appeal is a, a beseeching. It's the same word. It's the word paraclete. You're familiar with that, the one that is called alongside to give aid. The paraclete is an advocate. The paraclete is a comforter, an encourager, a strengthener. And so this is what uh, uh, Paul is doing. He is making that appeal. He's making this, this uh, comfort. Uh, I like the old King James, I beseech. There is a plea in it, as well as a promise of reward of what he's about to say. It, it's worth paying attention. If his, law, if his argument's been pretty long and tedious, especially coming through chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he's dealing with Israel and election and so many other wonderful things, and brings all to a great climactic a doxology of the glory of God, to him be all the glory, he now wants to make sure you don't leave him. He, he's only two-thirds of the way through the letter. He's got some things to say. And he brings us uh, to our attention what he wants to say. And he appeals by the mercies of God. And what are these mercies? Well, uh, just to slightly sketch them, and I don't think I got them all. I just sort of uh, tried to call through them. But he's talked about the mercies of God. And he's enumerated them in our calling, in the effectual call that God places upon our life. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
And he speaks to us about the doctrine of election, the truth of how God has graciously taken from all of the mass of humanity that are all under sin, all under condemnation, all dead in trespasses and sin, and all bound for the punishment of that sin, that is death and hell, God graciously and lovingly takes a remnant, takes a people from among the mass of perishing, godless, hateful, alienated sinners. Then he's talked about redemption using various categories of redemption found in the Old Testament. The idea of the kinsman redeemer, the idea of the kafar, the covering, the padah, the, the trading, the buying out of slavery. All of these concepts he has told us about our salvation, about regeneration, being made new, being born again, becoming a new person in Christ. About justification, that is that legal forensic declaration whereby God looks at all of our sin and looks at the atoning work of Christ and looks at us and says, not guilty. No evidence against you. There's no condemnation. And then he goes on to talk about our adoption. Sweet tones in chapter 8 of how we are beloved children of God that he has laid upon us all of the inheritance, all of the good name, everything that comes with being heirs of eternal life in Jesus Christ. These are the mercies of God. He's talked about our sanctification. Our, our struggle in sin, chapter 7, and, our, and our, our, our putting away, realizing a brand new truth that really wasn't all that clear in the Old Testament, but has become brilliant in the New Testament. And that is that when Christ died for sin, which is our substitutionary atonement, he also died to sin, which is our sanctification. In Christ, we are dead. Sin has no more rule, no more right, no more claim, no more reign. We are not under the condemning letter of the law anymore in Christ. And he talks about that. He talks about our preservation. He talks about how we have been so placed in Christ that there is nothing that can remove us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he lists things that might separate and says, no, None of these things. We are more than conquerors. He talks about our victory in Christ. Earlier in the letter, he talks about the, 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 the attribute of God that is forbearance. It's beyond patience that God puts up with us. But when God has a legal claim upon us to execute the punishment that is due us, he stays his hand. It's forbearance. The forbearance of God. He talks about the kindness of God. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. One of the things that will move us to repentance is to hear the thundering from Zion. The, I mean from Sinai. The law. But another thing that mixes in there with the wonderful work of God in our heart. Is that the kindness of God. The sweet and tender mercy. The, the calling voice. The outstretched hand. The, the voice of God calling us to come in his kindness and in his goodness overall, his love, his tenderness. There's more. You know there's more. But that's the mercies of God. And that's the appeal. That's the basis. Uh, because he's going to give us some pretty uh, high standard to move toward. But we need to know what we've enjoyed already in Christ. Because now he's going to encourage us to do something. And the rest of verse 1 is actually against a background of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, you all know the story. The book of Leviticus spells it out. Exodus does somewhat. And we find it spelled out again in other places how that God ordained a system whereby animal sacrifices could be brought to the Lord 
and laid upon an altar, their blood shed, their carcass consumed, and that be the picture of the total devotion to God. The Bible tells us, in the book of Hebrews especially, spells it out in quite a bit of detail, that Christ fulfilled that office of priest. In fact, he is the high priest who lays the sacrifice upon the altar, and the sacrifice is Christ himself. He is both the priest and the victim. He is both the high priest that offers the, the, the day of atonement, the once a year sacrifice, and Christ did it in such a way that it becomes a once for all sacrifice. And so now the work of God has been completed in the atonement of Christ. So, but Paul's going to pick up that language and a, a portion of the meaning. And in talking about the priest and the animal, he's going to be talking about the sacrifice. And so he is going to ask us or beseech us to become a living sacrifice that we present our bodies. It's the, uh, we have in, in this particular passage, uh, the, uh, the word for body, som, soma, and it, sometimes it means only the material part of, the, of the, the person, but sometimes it means the whole person, and I think that's what it means here. We're to place our whole body upon the altar of sacrifice, just like the priest did in the Old Testament, in the, in the sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament. In other words, we become like Christ, both priest and sacrificial victim. So this language is set forth that he wants us to, to do this. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now the word as is not in the original, but it's pretty much understood. So this is a picture, an analogy. We are not making sacrifice for our sins. That's been done by Christ already. What we're doing now is we're talking about living a new life has been given to us, and we have been raised by the resurrection of Christ to walk in newness of life, in new life. And so we're going to talk about new in just a moment as well. And he talks about devotion and consecration. Uh, it's interesting, the word present your bodies, a living sacrifice. The presentation is what we do. It's that same idea of handing it over. In other words, we're to take our lives our whole body, our whole being, and yield up in devotion and consecration to the Lord. You remember there was a standard for the sacrifice in the Old Testament. They had to be a firstling of the flock. They had to be without spot and without blemish. And our lives are to be holy, and we're to be that kind of a sacrifice. Uh, it was a, an anathema. In fact, it was one of the worst things that Israel did when they got to where they offered the poorest and the pathetic of their flock. Here's a, here's a little uh, animal here who's uh, got a broken leg or has a certain malady or certain skin condition or looks like they're not going to develop too well. Well, let's make a sacrifice out of them. And so that which was secondary and that which was cheap and that which was basically throwaway was what they would present to God. Oh, I'm afraid we're, well, I'll say this, I'm a lot like that. I will give God what's left over. I will mark out a pretty good percentage of what's going to make my life comfortable. And then I look at time and money and effort and energy and compassion and all of the other things that are around the edges of my life. And has this be a good place to put that? This will, be, this will belong to the Lord. I'd like the 
abominable hypocrites in Jesus' day would take the parts that had been dedicated to something else and call that their tithe and call that their, their offering before the Lord. And that's not what Paul's asking for here. He's telling us that we are to take the firstling of the flock, the first, the best of our lives and offer it to the Lord. The best part, the major part, the supreme part, the part that we're most proud of that we want to keep, that's what must be yielded. And that's what that word present means. It means to yield, to hand over and make that. That part belongs to the Lord. It is sacred. He has already marked it out. Everything that God asked his people in the Old Testament to give him was something he had already claimed. So if you didn't give it to him, you robbed him. And that was true of the, of the firstborn coming out of Egypt. That was true of, of the land and everything you can think of. God already staked his claim on this portion. And he told him to give him that. And they didn't. And so the question was asked, will a man rob God? Well, you've robbed me. The Lord says in his plaintiff case against Israel there in the days of the, uh, the restoration, you've robbed me in the tithes and offerings and everything that you've given. Is there a cost to discipleship? Yes. The supreme cost has been paid by Christ, but the following secondary cost is in Christ, we do what Christ did, and that is we yield ourselves up. Growing up a Baptist, and occasionally once I began to court this beautiful young girl in college, and she was a Methodist, and so I had to, what I thought was step way down to go to the Methodist church. <clears throat> I found out later I was stepping up all along, it just, I didn't know that, but Often we talked about consecration, living a holy life, giving your life to the Lord. And I don't know how many times we had in the Baptist church altar calls where we'd ask people before we leave this room today, while your heart's still tender, while the words are still fresh, while your heart is still concentrated upon these, these wonderful truths, why don't you come and make a renewal and a commitment to the Lord that no matter what it's been like before, from now on, by God's grace, you're going to serve Him. And you kneel at the altar and you cry and you pray that God would forgive you of your sins and your backslidden and your cold-hearted condition and that you would have a renewal and a revival in your soul. We even call those meetings in the Baptist church revival meetings. I'm not sure we always were revived, but we at least had it in mind. We put it on the big banner out there, revival, you know, seven nights in a row. We have revival, and God gave revival. God gave revival. I'll testify to it firsthand. He gave revival to lots of souls. When that time was marked out, when that, when that effort was made to just say, let's come and lay our lives once again upon the altar of God, dedicating ourselves to follow Him and to serve Him with all of our power. Now we knew when we were doing it that we would fail, that we would fall short. We knew we wouldn't be perfect, but we also knew that the Lord would bless what we had done. So in summary, true worship, and that word that's used is, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable is the, it's the word logos. It, it, it means a reason, and it, it means logic. It also can mean word, but it can also mean understandable or explainable, you know, that which is rational. And that's, that's what this is. This is your rational service. And the word that's translated in our, in our uh, text there, <clears throat> uh, spiritual worship, is actually, and I like the King James better, it's your reasonable service. But the worship is the word liturgy. 
where we get our word for our worship services. And service means when we're there, we're serving the Lord by laying our lives upon the altar. We come to God's place in God's presence, just like they did in the Old Testament. We come to the church. We come to the people of God, the house of God, the, the gathering of God's people. It doesn't have to be a magnificent building like this. It can be just a small group gathered somewhere under a tree or in some living room or wherever. We come to the place where the temple of God is, the people of God are, and we put our lives there. And true worship is a wholehearted, full-throated consecration or devotion of our whole selves to God. That's verse 1. Now verse 2. He's going to give us a negative and a positive. And here's the negative. The negative says, do not be conformed to the world. The positive says, be transformed be transformed. Those words are significant. The word that says do not be conformed, uh, it, the, the negative is there. The connective, the negative, and then that word. And that word has to do with basically, it's, it's the word where we get our word um, scheme or schematic. And then the word cis is in front of it. And in other words, it means a systematizing of a scheme. In other words, there's something about a, a something that holds together as a um, as a complete entity, and that system is the world. It is the worldly system, the worldly way of thinking, the worldly way of acting, the worldly way of going down the broad road with everyone else, going along with with uh, the godlessness of the age. It is uh, uh, the the being. Um, together with, lumped into the same mold, into the same uh, scheme. I think one famous translator said, being squeezed into the world's mold. And let me tell you, that's what happens to us in Christians every day of our lives, and it happens to our church. The forces are pushing in on us to put us into the mold. We try to say we're free in Christ. No, you're enslaved. We, they deny everything we claim about our Christian faith. They put us. We have a heavenly perspective. They make sure we have an earthly perspective. It's materialistic. It's geocentric. It is um, materialistic and, and humanistic to the core. Everything about it, it's, it's, it's a system. And it's something that God tells us by way of another apostle, uh, not to be in love with it. Love not the world or the things that are in the world. And, but that's what he says, don't do. Don't become like the world. Don't become systematized, schematized, molded like the world so that when somebody looks at you, they can't tell that you're even a Christian because you look like you've come out of the mold of the world. And in every contour of your life, it fits the mold that you've been squeezed into. And that's the scheme of your existence. Don't do that. Instead, he says positively, he says, be transformed. And the word there, I know you all know, it's metamorphosis. It's like going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the cocoon that makes the difference. When the caterpillar goes into the, the cocoon and it's formed around him, and then when he emerges, the butterfly, totally different. Completely changed. Morph. The form has completely changed. Metamorphized. It, it is not any thing like the caterpillar. Attributes are different, looks are different, one crawls, one flies, 
One's ugly, one's beautiful, etc., etc. That's the, the degree of transformation that needs to take place in the life of a Christian. You need to be as far from the world in, in appearance and abilities and attributes as a butterfly is from the caterpillar. And that cocoon is a nasty little thing in a lot of ways. And I, if we were to spiritualize the text, which I enjoy doing every once in a while, it's harmless if you're thinking straight. It's our sanctification. It's all those nasty little things that come around our lives that shape us and make us, that make us patient, that make us compassionate, that make us loving, that, that, that roots out all of the dirty little areas as we fail in those areas and as we're forgiven in those areas and then we move forward in progress. We are, we've been transformed because actually the way he lays it out here, he says, do so by the renewal of your mind. That's what the cocoon amounts to. The renewal of the mind is, is pretty interesting, and there's a contrast here. We have a depraved mind, a dark mind. We have a blind mind and a twisted mind in our own flesh. The Bible says the natural man receives not the things of God, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We have an incapacitated mind as unbelievers and as unregenerate persons. But as Jesus said, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. The mind, the noose. I, I was looking up noose and studying that word mind. And I thought, is noose the Greek root for the word noodle? <laughs> no, it's not. I just, I just thought that up. But the noose or the noodle it is, 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 the, is the thinking and the feeling and the, and the understanding and the reacting and the evaluating. Most importantly, as the text will just now tell us, it's the discerning. It's the place of judgment. It's the place where you can tell the difference between black and white, right and wrong, up and down, in and out. And you make, can get these big, strong categories in your mind. Then you can think about the nuances and the shades of meaning in between. But first, you have to have these categories set. And so that's what the depraved mind turns into in regeneration. We receive a new mind. Literally, uh, it's new again. It's anokinos. It's new again. Isn't that a beautiful idea that in regeneration, in salvation, we've been given a new mind, a new capacity to think and to reason and to, and to love and to work and, to, and to, to plan and do everything we need because we've been given a new mind. We've been given the mind of Christ. And so that mind is set up for something. This new noose this new mind is given to us in order that we may prove. In order to prove, you have to use some discernment. And by, by discerning and testing, we test two things. And this will be our conclusion. It is we test what the will of God is, and then we detect that the will of God is good. Let's take those quickly. This discernment, this testing that comes. This testing enables us to discern what the will of God is. And here I imagine is where Dr. Chapel's going to really hammer down pretty hard because the, the uh, template that we have to discern the will of God is the Word of God, the law of God. It was a gracious giving when God gave Moses the law. Because now Israel knows what their God is like and what it's going to take to please Him. 
what it's going to take to walk in his paths, what it's going to take to live according to the way he wants them to. They don't have to guess. They don't have to experiment. They don't have to try. They don't have to make it up out of their own conscience. God specifically, categorically lays down his expectation for their, their worship of him and as well as their, their uh, way of living. And of course, their salvation as well. The word of God sets all this up. It says, basically, do this, don't do this. The positive commandments, the affirmations, the exhortations, the reproofs, all scriptures breathed by God and is profitable for doctrine, but for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It gives us this notion of what the will of God is. People pray they know the will of God. A lot of times it's what job should I take? Who should I marry? What move should I make? Should I move to Seattle or should I remain in Dallas? You know, or maybe Fort Worth would be a better move. And we, what's God's will for my life? Well, God may have an idea of which one he wants you to be in and he'll move you around providentially and he'll get you there. But God wants you, whether you're in Dallas or Fort Worth or Seattle or wherever, to keep his commandments, to love and obey him, to walk in his ways, to seek his face, and on and on and on. And that's what the Word of God does. It tells us what the will of God is for our life. And then finally, it tells us and gives us an ability to discern, to test, to prove that the will of God is three things, good, acceptable, and perfect. Let me go over each of them quickly. We discern that the will of God is good. That is, it is for our spiritual health. It works for the good. It is the, the bonum, the Latin word bonum. Uh, the the, um, the uh, agathos in the Greek, and often the good is spoken of in, in a categorical way. We would almost capitalize it. It's the summum bonum, the highest good, the greatest good. God's will is always that. Paul had worked that out just a few verses back about all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord, the, those who are called according to His purpose. And that works itself out here in acceptable. The acceptable is the sweet savor to the Lord. Do you remember when the sacrifices were made, they were burned. And I'm going to tell you that I don't, I don't have an experience it firsthand, but I've got a real good uh, inkling that that was a very smelly uh, odor. Burning sheep entrails. <laughs> How in the world would that be an acceptable offering to the Lord? Well, in the old apothecary down at the drugstore, they had secret formulas that they mixed up the oils and they mixed up the various spices in such they made they made this oil that was that was made for putting over the fire and making a steam. And as the steam came up, it was a sweet smelling savor. And that's what discerning the will of God is. The will of God is that sweet savor to the Lord. That's, that's what he's looking for in his people. And then finally, the word of God, the will of God, I mean, is perfect. And the word there is a word we're familiar with, teleos. And it means that there's a goal. It means the will of God is purposeful. All things work together for good to those who love God, who's called according to his purpose. There's the full, complete meaning of that promise that we're given. It's purposeful and complete. It's full. There's a goal in sight. 
And there's a movement toward our sanctification in the long haul. What God is doing is He's cleaning up a dirty, filthy person and making it into a beautiful bride. And that's what the Lord's doing in our salvation. And when we, when we dedicate and lay ourselves upon the altar of devotion, we're in that process. I'm not going to give an altar call. I want to real bad. But I'm going to let Pete lead us in the supper, which is a whole lot better, actually. <laughs>